You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Eli. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Uh, good. Relatively speaking, you know, summertime in Washington, D.C., it's a swamp. It is. It is a swamp in D.C. I've been there. I've been there. Uh, you're, you're in Princeton? I'm in uh, swampy Princeton. Yeah, it gets pretty swampy here. Yeah. Um, the, uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and the audio podcast. You are Eli Lake, columnist. Uh, you for at Bloomberg at Bloomberg Opinion, formerly Bloomberg View. Yes. Um, and we're gonna uh, compare and contrast our foreign policy visions, uh, which I think we both agree uh, are different. Um, and we're going to do it by reference to, you know, current events, but also by reference to a piece that you wrote in the magazine, the Liberties, which is almost a year ago, but it, because it was looking at a longer view, I still think it's relevant. It's a long piece. It took me yeah. a year to read it. It's 12,000 words. Eli. <laughs> what know, are you doing? What are you doing? Why, too didn't, long. Yeah. why didn't you call it a book? I should have maybe thought it was a book. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but the reason uh, I think it still merits attention is because uh, one thing it does is criticize a group of foreign policy thinkers you call the restrainers. Now, I identify myself with the restrainers, uh, and, and here restrainers means people who uh, encourage restraint in the use of military force and are, are very skeptical of uh, U.S. military intervention. But I would say that the restrainers to me are something of a coalition. Uh, they, they include, for example, what you could call conservative realists as well as uh, what I would call myself, which is a progressive realist. So I would say I am a restrainer, but I don't agree with restrainers about uh, everything. And maybe as the conversation progresses, I'll get a chance to put a finer point on what I believe. Meanwhile, what labels would you use to characterize yourself in this regard? Um, you know, I, 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 I might be the last person who doesn't have a problem calling himself a neoconservative, although I don't think that that label, you know, I, I don't know how useful of a label that is. Originally, it was meant to be somebody who started on the left and migrated to the right. Uh, it became associated with the freedom agenda of George W. Bush. Uh, so I, I largely agree with that, though I'm not, uh, when we started doing these in that Era, I think I was far more optimistic about certain things, and I think I would cede uh, certainly some criticisms where I've become, in my middle age, uh, and this is a bit of a paradox, I guess, which is that I believe in a kind of muscular American foreign policy, but I have great skepticism about large institutions, and, uh, you know, I, and I have concerns about sort of individual liberties inside the United States. So by large institutions, you mean, uh, I mean, by what I, I, I mean, both government institutions, but like, so I, I accept a kind of F.A. Hayek view that big institutions inevitably become inefficient and over time corrupted. Um, and that goes for institutions that normally, uh, people like myself who believe in a very active and large mm-hmm. American presence in the world, like the U.S. military. Uh, as well as traditional targets of uh, kind of conservative criticism, such as the Social Security Administration. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and you've also shown uh, in recent years, I would say, more concern about the power of the national security state. Is that fair? Uh, I do have a lot of concerns about the power of the national security state, but it has not led me to embrace kind of a Glenn Greenwald perspective, although I agree with him on some of the excesses as it affects American citizens. Mm -hmm. And that part of my uh, part of the reason that I like a powerful America is because I do think that it's worth fighting for uh, liberal democracy when we can and with liberal Democrats abroad, that I do think that those two things are tied up in our security. So I acknowledge that this is a somewhat paradoxical view. It'd be much neater if I just simply said big institutions stink. Um, you know, they, they do more harm than good. You know, it, it would lead to a simpler kind of politics, but I don't have that. I, I, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm caught between these two kind of views. Okay. Now you just mentioned liberal democracies. Um, and I'm wondering if you think you have something in common. With liberal internationalists, uh, I was just listening to a debate on blogging heads where this will be, uh, between Patrick Porter and, and John Eikenberry. And one difference between the two. Now, Patrick Porter, I would say, is a restrainer, somebody of a realist. Uh, John Eikenberry, who I believe coined the term liberal internationalist, liberal internationalism and is a liberal internationalist, uh, thinks that, uh, you know, this should be an important kind of organizing category, like liberal democracies should stick together, uh, and, and especially need to, I guess, in the, in the, in the coming decades. That's somewhere you would, you would agree with liberal internationalists. There, I would right? go further than most liberal internationalists in the following sense. I, don't think it's possible to have effective international institutions if you include spoiler authoritarian states within them. So I think we need to have um, a World Health Organization that is not going to be manipulated by China. I think we need to have uh, a uh, an Interpol that where states like Turkey or Russia will not use the red notice system to target their political opponents abroad. And that we have to learn the lessons of, uh, recent past that the institutions themselves do not restrain or, um, mollify, uh, rival powers like China and get them to sort of buy into, uh, the global commons, but they end up often weakening these institutions themselves. And, uh, so we, we end up getting a situation where, um, you know, we, we still can't get straight answers on the origin of the, uh, COVID-19 virus in part because the institution for a long time of the World Health Organization sort of went along with things that China was putting out there that were not true. So I believe that China's for, that's a classic example where China kind of broke trust with this institution. And we have to ask ourselves the question of, is it a good strategy to try to bring the Russias, the Chinas, and other states like that into these things with the idea that we're sort of constraining them and then we constrain ourselves, which is the traditional, I think, liberal or nationalist view, uh, or do we risk the institutions themselves when we bring these states into them? And I'm much more in the camp of, I think we, we're, under, we're undermining the institutions themselves. 
So, uh, I mean, that's interesting that, you know, because I am a fan of uh, international institutions, at least in the sense of not not necessarily a fan of of them in their present form in all cases. But I believe we need a lot more of them uh, and, and we need more in the way of respect for international law, rules of the road. Um, uh, but you're. I'm not sure I share your 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 premise seems to be that authoritarian governments are much more inclined to subvert international institutions for the sake of their own perceived national interest than, say, countries like ours are. And I'm not sure I'm willing to go along with that. I mean, we certainly do that. Right. The United States does that. But I don't think that our national, I think our national interest, I think like this, I think a U.S. led order is largely better for the world. So it depends on what you define as the U.S. interest. Although a lot of times the United States, you know, participates, I think far more honorably than China has in these mm-hmm. sorts of things. So you think about something that's technical, like writing the rules for 5G and the global internet protocol system. Do you trust the Chinese government, which has created a kind of uh, panopticon state where they're monitoring their, their, their citizens and have introduced the idea of social credit and all kinds of Orwellian ideas that would make most of us in the West very uncomfortable? Or would you rather have those institutions sort of led by the United States or many of its like-minded allies? Like I wouldn't care if Belgium was the chair of that particular committee. I forget the name of it. Uh, that was doing that sort of thing. So these are the kinds of situations where I think it's important to, at least for now, try to wage a kind of political warfare against, uh, you know, leaders that are nominated by states like China uh, that I think will end up sort of undermining it and just sort of, I, I don't want a Chinese vision of the Internet. I don't want a Chinese sort of led World Health Organization. Well, or for that matter, the you know the Chinese two years ago, they basically disappeared the Chinese head of Interpol when he returned to the mainland. He he was arrested, and we hadn't heard, we didn't hear from him. So that kind of activity. Uh, so let me. I mean, so what yeah. about when, for example, uh, uh, John Bolton uh, during the Bush administration, uh, basically, as I recall. Uh, did he force the the head of the uh, uh, the OPCW, the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, kind of uh, out of office or something? I mean, he played some kind of serious hardball. And, and this has surfaced again uh, recently, uh, accusations that the Trump administration was uh, was corrupting the workings of the OPCW. But I mean, th- that kind of stuff. Happens, I'm not familiar right? with, the, with the OPCW story. I mean, the big one that everyone brings up with Bolton is that. He introduced this concept that the Bush, the W. Bush administration would pressure countries not to sign the Rome statute for the International Criminal Court because the U.S. didn't want to join the International Criminal Court. Mm-hmm. And the Bush administration was opposed to it. And he went one further and said, all right, well, if you're basing U.S. forces in your country, you know, we're going to we're going to really try to tighten the screws diplomatically to make sure that you do not give this illegitimate court any legitimacy. Um and that was largely, I guess, of sort of Bolton's brainchild. And that would be, mm. I suppose, an example for someone who liked the ICC, the International Criminal Court. That would be an example of America undermining an institution. But, you know, the United States has not uh, ratified the Rome Statute mm. uh, in, in, in the Senate. And I, I would agree. Like, I don't think that the ICC is, you know, the way to handle those questions. 
which are largely, you know, sort of questions of geopolitics. Okay. Well, and, uh, on, on the OPCW thing, I don't have the details about how that was resolved. I do know if people Google it, they'll find that the, the director of the OPCW at that point said that uh, Bolton did, uh, who was, you know, in the uh, U.S. administration, working in the White House, um, threatened his children, said, we know where your children live, we, you know, and, and played serious heart. He took All it right, as a I would have threat to, see to the I, physical... I, I, well, I'm that's what he said. No, there's no doubt that he said he took it as a threat to his his family. But l- let's look into another. I, I mean, if you're saying that uh, that liberal democracies can be trusted to abide by the international rules of the road in the way that authoritarian countries can't. I mean, what about one of the most fundamental rules of the road uh, of all uh, dating back to the founding of the United Nations, which is that if you are not attacked, uh, you're not allowed to attack another country unless you have the authorization of the Security Council. And the U.S. has violated that, certainly most famously in the case uh, of the invasion of Iraq. And, and quite consequentially, uh, a lot of other cases where, for example, the intervention in Kosovo, where we didn't have Security Council authority, um, th- that uh, to me, that's as, as important as any uh instance of respecting the authority of international institutions. We're talking about war and peace. And I would say uh we have a worse record than uh than China in that regard. Um probably not worse than than Russia after Ukraine, but uh but but it, it's just not I, I'm not willing to grant the premise that as a rule uh we can assume that a powerful liberal democracy like the United States will do uh, a better job of respecting uh, the authority of international institutions and not corrupting them and respecting the rules of the road than a than an authoritarian country. I, I mean, it would be an interesting thing to look into. It's not obviously true to me. Well, I would, you know, just take Kosovo first. You know, the intervention was not because America desired, uh, you know, Kosovo's natural resources. It was because there was an imminent, ethnic cleansing of Albanians in Kosovo, which Slobodomilosevic was undertaking. And his protector at the UN National Security Council was Russia. And they limited or they, they vetoed any chance for the UN Security Council to do something about it. And so then at that point, you are faced with uh, competing values. One would be to stop the ethnic cleansing of Albanians, which I think was a good thing, and I am glad that that happened. And the other would be respecting the wishes of the UN National Security Council when one of its members was clearly uh, willing to allow its client, Slobodan Amilosevic, to go ahead with that. Uh, as for Iraq, we, we disagree on Iraq. We can talk about it, but I certainly uh, concede that it, a lot of the nation-building that the United States did, besides some very good things like uh, you know, I think that there has been successive elections. That's good for Iraq. But, you know, there are all these stories. Uh, there's a great book by a Washington Post reporter whose name I'm going to not pr- try to pronounce about the folly of a lot of USAID efforts to try to, you know, bring in all these sort of modern ideas and various local villages and things like that. I, I see that. I understand that when it comes to this sort of nitty gritty, that all those sort of mistakes are made. At the same time, um, I, I don't, I don't think that uh, the only consideration in these cases is just that every time you need a, the UN National Security, the UN Security Council to um, uh, to to act in that way, because America 
you know, is a superpower and it's, and, and okay. that there are certain okay. values like, you know, there are certain things that they, okay. that, I, I, I take yeah. your point. You, you don't yeah. think we should always respect the rules, but whenever, whenever nations violate the rules, they have a reason. They always come up with a reason. And I'm not going to argue. I, I don't want to turn this into an argument about whether the Iraq war was, was actually sincerely motivated and just kind of didn't work out or what. But, but the point is, uh, your premise, I took your premise to be authoritarian nations will do a better job of actually respecting the no, international no, and the rules. Of, that was not your premise. No, no, no. You said authoritarian nations. So I meant liberal democracies will do a better job. Oh, okay. Right. I got that back. But you, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I took your premise to be so, so I, I don't want to shift this into a, your, uh, the, where a discussion uh, oh, that you're having now sense. about right. how actually we shouldn't worry about the rules of the road anyway. We should violate them. When no, 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 no. That's no, no. a different well, discussion. I, I was talking about um, kind of institutions that have been created through the U.N. system that are meant to stabilize uh, the world economic system, that are meant to share public health information, that are meant to share well, law enforcement No institution is more closely associated with the United Nations than the Security Council. And it's also been deeply politicized from the very beginning. Well, so has the WHO. I mean, look, th- these are institutions run by humans. Of course. Uh, all I want to say is I do not, I would have to see uh, good, you know, uh, uh, sustained empirical argument uh, before I'd be convinced that we can assume that authoritarian nations will be egregiously, will be really considerably worse than the United States has been at respecting international institutions and international norms and laws, because we have not been very good, in my view. Okay. And there and are I, plenty I, of examples. I, let me of say, that. I think this is the, 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 the fundamental risk of our disagreement. Right. I think that there are plenty of fair criticisms of the U.S.-led international order, which we're still in, even though it's not quite what it was before. And I resent uh, people who try to give a, a kind of hagiography of U.S. intervention that everything is like World War II and defeating the Nazis and things like that. There have been mistakes. There have been crimes. There have been missteps. There have been errors. And we can quibble about specifics, but I'm not here to tell you that everything has been terrific. What I am here to say is that it's a far better deal, not just for America, but for the rest of the world, for America to be the dominant hegemon and the anchor of this international system than if China or Russia were in that role. And I am basing that in part on how these countries have organized themselves domestically and what they do to their own populations, but also the brazenness with which China itself uh, ignores international law basically to pursue its own power politics. Uh, a small example, but a fairly important one, is that, you know, the Hague ruled, I think now five years ago, that the uh, various islands that they were building in the South China Sea impinged on Philippine territory. Didn't matter. China completely rejected it, and they went forward doing all of that anyway. There was an agreement that China had, had, had made with the United States and the United Kingdom with regards to Hong Kong's system and allowing Hong Kong to have its own kind of internal system with a handover over time when it would eventually be, I think, 2048 mm-hmm. was the year that they were supposed to do that. What we just saw as in the last year, uh, China basically swallowed it up. They shuttered the last free newspaper. They've arrested all these sorts of dissidents and uh, various people in that country. And I just think that you 
that you have to accept that even though there are many fair criticisms of the American-led okay. order, that it will be worse if the Chinese uh, become the preeminent power. I mean, we wouldn't even be having in a lot of ways okay, these but, kinds of but conversations. But it seems to me like those kinds of examples yeah. that, uh, well, one of them had to do with, uh, well, what is a kind of twilight zone case in terms of whether it's an internal matter. In other words, everyone grants that, yes, Hong Kong is in a sense part of China. On the other hand, they were supposed to integrate it more slowly uh, than they did. And then the the uh, the other one concerns, uh, you know, what territorial waters, disputed islands and so on. I mean, why would you not say the same thing uh, about the, the various uh, – United Nations rulings that apply to Israel that Israel would seem to be in violation of and does not seem to be trying to bring itself into compliance with. I mean, many of those, some of those are kind of twilight zone too, right? The West Bank is, well, it's not really part of Israel, but Israel uh, isn't willing to concede that it has a status in international law that the United Nations says. But in any event, why are, why are those kind of two different things. I mean, and Israel is, you would classify as a liberal democracy, I'm sure. And yet it seems to me that it's, it's, uh, defying, um, UN, uh, some UN dictates in a way that's, that's somewhat comparable to the way China is. Um, I don't really think that's, it's, first of all, China's far more powerful than Israel. But second of all, you know, the, the main crime that we're talking about with Israel, I mean, I guess there would be two baskets of things that you would be referring to. One is, uh, its conduct in the, uh, episodic wars with Gaza in recent years. And, uh, you know, I think it's far from clear that Israel is deliberately targeting civilians, but I think a case could be made that they are using the kind of, um, military hardware in densely populated areas to go after uh, an enemy that cynically is shooting rockets from deliberately civilian areas and provoking these conflicts. The second would be the construction of um, housing in East Jerusalem, which is Israel's capital and uh, is far more disputed than other parts of the West Bank. And then the, uh, I guess, kind of encroachment into what's called Area C and uh, expansion of uh, some settlements. Now, Israel has proven in Gaza uh, in 2006 that it is willing to uproot its own population and settlements in order to see territory back that did not produce, uh, results that any, most Israelis would think are good. So you're not, you're sort of stuck right now. Um, and there have been efforts by the two sides to, and Israel has tried to negotiate, uh, these kinds of deals and, you know, that, that it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I think that's very different than um, a communist government well, okay, going but, into Hong Kong and you literally conquering You understand it. that you haven't denied that Israel is in defiance. No, but let me just finish. Let okay. me finish. Let me okay. finish. Let me finish. All right. You haven't denied that Israel is uh, is violating the mandates of the, of the UN. You've kind of explained why it kind of makes sense from Israel's point of view. Well, I guarantee you, if you point out to China that they're not complying with certain mandates, they'll have these arguments like that. They'll say, but you don't understand X, Y, and Z. And, and I don't want to get bogged down in those things. I just want to get back to the fact that, uh, you know, you're saying that authoritarian, uh, countries basically can't be trusted to comply 
with international uh, dic- uh, rules and, and respect to international institutions, liberal democracies can. I'm just saying, I think there are so many counterexamples that I'm, I'm just not willing to accept that premise. Well, I don't think we need to keep Let me give you another argument that's structural. It's a slightly different one that, I, that may persuade you. I hope it does. Authoritarian systems are closed and by necessity have to keep secrets from different factions, but also their own citizens. There's great opacity in uh, these regimes. I think you would grant. Liberal democracies are uh, what Karl Popper would call open societies. They uh, So even in efforts where the United States has done terrible things in the cloak of secrecy, they have eventually outed. This is the kind of the great story of uh, the American Cold War is, in my view, not this it's not entire, it's not just, you know, we can, we can all do the sort of list of things, you know, the, the coup in Guatemala, the coup in Iran, you know, uh, the coup in South Vietnam. We can go through the list of all of these things the United States did, both at home and abroad, uh, from, you know, COINTELPRO to assassination attempts in Cuba, the whole list of it. What to me is really important here is that eventually these things came to light and there were at least some reforms that were instituted. How effective those reforms are, are debated. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of beginning to think through my next, like, longer essay on the FBI in this regard. But the, that's another important difference, is, is that uh, a country like the United States, but I would argue, you know, Western democracies, have a mechanism for renewing, for dealing with their own scandals and crimes. They do, that does not exist in communist China. If you begin to sort of do that, and, and, you know, sometimes you will get a Gorbachev, but it took Boris Yeltsin, uh, you know, to come in and finally, you know, dismember the, the, the full Soviet system. Uh, that kind of reckoning is fatal to dictatorships uh, in a way that that's like eventually, that, whereas it's a, a very good process in the United States when it works or liberal democracies. And that's another reason why I trust liberal democracies in these kinds of institutions uh, to, to use them. To, I mean, because to, eventually when we do creepy stuff abroad, it eventually comes to light and we feel bad about it. Is that well, it? No, well, and, and institutions are reformed and that there's been uh, at least at the very least kind of political accountability. Abu Ghraib happened uh, under George W. Bush. And I think that Abu Ghraib is one of the reasons Barack Obama was elected. Right. It's one of the, re- it's, it's clearly why, you know, Donald Rumsfeld had to resign. It's not, it's, it, 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 I'm saying in authoritarian systems, we probably would, you know, you probably mm. wouldn't find out about Abu Ghraib. Uh, and if you did, yeah. you would be, you, 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 you would be you, shot you, if you talked about you, it. You might, you might not, but I, I mean, if we're talking about, if we're getting back to, well, let, let me kind of set the, the backdrop. I mean, a, a premise of mine is that it's really critical for America's self-interest and for the self-interest of other nations to address a bunch of transnational problems, not yes. just climate change, but the control of bioweapons, which is just totally, we don't have any, we're not even making a serious effort in, in keeping with, with the magnitude of the problem, the threat of bioweapons. Um, I'd like Preach. to prevent. I, I, well, yeah, uh, but, I but, but you, you have to get, uh, you know, uh, all, all big nations on board if you're going to do something serious about that, right? Well, Authoritarian okay. and liberal. And, and, and let me say, there's tons of other things. I mean, weapons in space, 
I don't want to see an arms race in, in AI weapons or even in AI. I don't want to see an arms race in human genetic engineering, trying to genetically engineer, uh, you know, whatever superior beings or cyber soldiers or anything. There's, there's a, and there are other environmental problems and there's old fashioned nuclear weapons control. There's a ton of problems. And for me, that's a priority. And with some of these things, just by definition, you have to have China on board for them sure. to, to work. So no you can't, you can't act like, well, I'm afraid we can't pursue these, these, these cases where we need to construct international rules, perhaps along with international institutions of enforcement. We'd love to, but China can't be trusted. So we'll just stick with the liberal democracies and do something completely meaningless on bioweapons because well, for all no. we know, they're building them in China. No, that just no. doesn't work. No, no, uh, I don't have a problem with arms control agreements. Well, okay, but, but you just, but, but that is an example. Right. But that involves an international institution. Gets back to the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which we have actually not respected. You can have an arms control agreement with China between the U.S. and China or the U.S. and, uh, Russia and China, which are the three countries that can produce and field intermediate range nuclear missiles. And you can say, here's what we're going to do. And these are the three countries that are going to do it. And it's sort of a bare bones agreement. I don't have a problem with diplomacy with authoritarian states. You need to have diplomacy with those states. My issue is I do not think that knitting them into these other kinds of institutions, which are so important when you add them all up is actually helping us. I think it undermines it. I think my examples are, we don't have any, we don't have any equivalent example on the issue of Interpol of the kind of abuse that we've seen as a, a systematic abuse from not just the, the Russian China, but Iran and Turkey, they're now using the system that's supposed to basically be like, you know, putting out a, a red alert for, you know, drug traffickers or something to go after political dissidents and to harass people who are, who have, who are trying to, you know, fight for liberal democracy in their own country. That is a perversion of the system, and we should probably rethink that. But if you want to do something about bioweapons, yeah. I agree. I think we should do something about bioweapons. I have no problem with having strategic talks with China to talk about cyber warfare. I just, I'm under no illusions. I don't think that they're going to, out of the kindness of their heart, stop trying to, you know, pay, as we just learned, you know, criminals to do ransomware attacks on U.S. corporations, uh, they're going to have to no. be deterred. And no, that's, so I mean, that's just regular statecraft between two countries. But when we're talking well, about the international well, system, well, it's I a mean, little different. Nations, I don't expect nations to do anything out of the kindness of their heart. And I certainly don't expect them to enter into uh, international agreements that meaningfully constrain their behavior out of the kindness of their, their heart. I expect them to do it when they think they can gain more uh, by being part of a system that uh, preserves some order and in the, and in the process protects them, uh, then then they then is the case if, uh, you know, there is no such regime. And I would not uh, give up on the possibility of actual uh, a meaningful agreement on cyber weapons. I mean, it's early days. I, I, you know, you act as if uh, because uh, some authoritarian nations have been bad actors in some realms, uh, that could never change. And, and, and by the way, in terms of, you know, th- there's always a counterexample. I mean, in, in, in terms of like, well, the Chinese spy people on people. So, uh, you know, how can they be trusted to, to, uh, 
be involved in building the the international infrastructure. Well, we actually spy on we actually use the fact that the United Nations is in America to spy on people in the United Nations. That's, that is true. Planted bugs. And and as far as well, you know, they will abuse Interpol uh, to hunt down whatever. Um, I guess I guess we haven't maybe we haven't abused Interpol uh, to try to get Edward Snowden or, or uh, you know, Julian Assange back. But but these countries would consider those two actors comparable to some of the actors we complain about. And they might have interesting you know, we complained about their treatment of, and they might I, have interesting I, arguments. Well, I, 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 I concede your point that authoritarians will come up with arguments that justify their behaviors. I fundamentally think that we have a better system here in the West, and I reject those arguments. I mean, it's I, sure okay. you're oh. right. That's what they say. They, Soviets did it all the time. They used to say they had this wonderful system of trials, and you know, it's just like America, but it was all. Crap! It wasn't true. Well, well no, I said it was just—it was just a way to try to convince people in the West that actually maybe the Soviet Union wasn't so bad. It was a—it was a—it was a horror show. No, the, I'm the, not. Don't don't. But don't conflate two arguments. I'm not arguing that the Soviet Union wasn't more repressive than the U.S. was, or that Russia isn't more repressive than the U.S. is, or that China isn't more repressive than the U.S. is. Uh, I, I, I'm talking about uh, whether their histories makes it. Uh, fair to assume that they can't that they can't be drawn into uh, respecting the the most critical international accords. I think we need to construct uh, as as well as uh, liberal democracies do. It's it's far from clear to me that that's uh, not the case. And I mean, may, you know, and you know, you said well, I, I took you to almost be saying that that uh, the. <laughs> The reason, um, so wait, so, so, so the institute, so things you think do matter are like arms control. No, uh, I think that I, I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that we've had a general approach that it was a good thing to bring Russia into the World Trade Organization and that it's a good thing to encourage authoritarian states mm-hmm. to actively try to participate uh, in these international institutions. Because we sort of assumed that they would uh, eventually be constrained by these international institutions. So that's been the strategic thinking for some time. And what I'm saying is that there's a lot of evidence now that actually these institutions are hollowed out and corrupted by these states. And so it means that we have to rethink this idea of whether how desirable it is. If there was tomorrow a democratic revolution in Iran, I would want Iran to join all the international institutions because... I would want to try to give that government a shot. It's the it's the fact that I just think that there are very different incentives for authoritarian states and what they're trying to get out of these sorts of things. And ultimately, um, at the end of the day, I just think that the prosperity of Western democratic countries or not or or non-Western democratic countries is itself a kind of threat to authoritarian systems, just because of, you know we're we're so interconnected now that. You know, a Cuban living Havana who is watching their, you know, their, you know, the shambles of what's left of their, of their country. And then they might have a cousin in Florida who owns his own car wash. Okay. And that kind of pressure just between people is itself a kind of threat to these systems. So they're always going to try to figure out ways to undermine America and other democratic systems. We should come to expect that and prepare for that. And I think that means 
kind of policy of inoculation. It doesn't mean no diplomacy, mm-hmm. certainly doesn't mean no arms control, nor does it mean military war with everybody who doesn't organize their societies. That's a straw man and not, certainly not what I'm saying. But I do think, as I write in the essay, that we have in moments where there is a kind of teetering, we, we have both a strategic and a moral obligation to try to side with the people who are representing uh, at least a push for more openness and more liberal democracy. And th- they look to us. We see it over and over again in Tiananmen Square. They erected a Statue of Liberty. That's we are a beacon. Okay. That okay. So now I think, yeah, yeah l- let's move into this okay. area of discussion. I mean, I first have, I can't resist saying as long as you mentioned the WTO and said authoritarian nations uh, seem to be hollowing out in- international institutions. I mean, Donald Trump, an American president, and you can call him an aberration, but he was the American president. Literally chose to paralyze the adjudicatory mechanism in the WTO by refusing to appoint new judges. So in effect, because, uh, you know, so the court of appeals didn't have enough judges to, to make rulings and that paralyzed the whole thing. He literally crippled the most important single innovation about the WTO compared to the general agreement on tariffs and trades, uh, which was the, the having an adjudicatory. Me- and, and again, I mean, you can say, well, but Trump's not my guy was not my guy either. But if you're looking at this from China or Russia's perspective, you're like, America's doing what they're complaining we do. Okay. So no, but I, mean, I, I would, I would make a different argument on that just very quickly. I mean, listen, I don't agree with what Trump did, but. Trump, it wasn't coming out of nowhere. It wasn't because he just didn't like the WTO. It was because there had been, you know, years and years and years where he was somewhat correct that China was engaging in all kinds of skullduggery and cheating when it came to the. Okay, but you keep doing this, Eli. It's driving me crazy. I have to confess, we keep, you know, you keep, we start out by saying, I, I, I say, are you, can you really. Uh, you know, here's a reason I don't think it's it's uh, accurate to say that liberal democracies give a whole lot more respect to these institutions and authoritarian nations. Look, liberal democracies broke the rules. And you and you start going, you start doing this special pleading. Oh, yeah. But in that case, they thought this. And again, the authoritarian nations have their special pleadings, too. And I don't know enough. I don't think we'll settle it right now. But but my point is either you respect the rules or you quit claiming you do. OK, so you can't keep claiming liberal democracies respect the rules if I can keep showing you they don't. And you can't keep claiming they uphold the integrity of the institutions when I can show you hollow that that they are hollowing them out in some cases. I mean, it, it just it's not enough to say, oh, but the reason we broke the rules then our, our whole argument is about who breaks the rules and who doesn't. Right. It isn't about who has the better excuses for rule breaking. Uh, yeah, but I would also say part of my argument is also that under American leadership, the world has largely become more prosperous. We've seen an explosion of all kinds of wonderful medical technologies. There has been more trade. There has been generally, it has been a pretty good ride with America as the dominant hegemon if you take the long view. Uh, and I, what I'm saying is that if China was the dominant hegemon, we wouldn't even, it, it, it wouldn't, I just, I'm convinced that we would have a far worse system. We would have more repression, more authoritarian. We would have it would it would the world would be a, a poorer place in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. I will say quickly, in terms of abiding by rules and agreements, you know, you mentioned that well, democracies have transparency, and that's good in cer- certain ways. Liberal democracies, but authoritarians have a greater ability to actually stick with their uh, commitments. So lately, we've had. Uh, 
you know, Obama signs the Iran nuclear deal. Trump reneges on it. Trump agrees to get out of Afghanistan by May. Biden says we can't do it by then. Now he, he's doing it pretty fast. Fine. But the point is, we're not seeing the inter-administration continuity of commitment that you actually do see in, in authoritarian nations. So in some ways, if we're just talking about nations making commitment to rules, um, there, 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 uh, there are reasons you might worry more about liberal democracy's ability to stick by their commitments. And certainly recent American history, uh, I think demonstrates that. But, but, but that's, but, but I want to, I, I do think we should get to this, uh, uh, the larger question of, I mean, in the backdrop of all of this is your belief that the thing that you share with liberal internationalists of at least some stripes that we should really, uh, kind of focus our, uh, our association on other liberal democracies, you know, uh, like-minded nations that, that are, you know, I, I mean, I would say, I would say, uh, uh, aggregate with like-minded nations in the sense of nations that want to solve, uh, arms control problems and want to, and want to do climate change and, and so on. I, I would emphasize that, but you're saying the like-minded nations we should, uh, we should, uh, associate with in particular are the liberal, um, democracies, right? Uh, that, that's a fair, well, I think that liberal democracies share certain strategic interests, such as containing Russia and uh, containing China and, uh, you know, supporting, like, for example, what we just saw in Cuba. Uh, right now, the Biden administration is working with some private industries to figure out if there is a way that they can provide uh, an alternative internet to Cuba because the regime has shut it down after these protests that we just saw. Okay. I don't know where you will stand on that. I think it's a great idea, but that's the kind of thing that I would imagine you could get lots of countries in the European union and Latin America, the democracies to support that and to pool their resources in such a way to uh, try to pressure the regime to release the political prisoners. They've just arrested to, work on ways in trying to provide the internet to the Cuban people. Those are those, those kinds of things. I think that there is a sort of natural affinity. Whereas if you had a group that, um, included, uh, I don't know, Cuba and Maduro's Venezuela and North Korea on the committee to figure out what to do about Cuba, nothing would happen. So that's why I generally agree with the liberal, the, the liberal internationalists in the sense that, yeah, that's, that's a, that's an example of trying to work together Maybe there's a way you can formalize it. In the 90s, Clinton had this idea called the community of democracies. That might be a good idea. It gets tricky because there are some allies of the United States right now that are important for strategic interests that are not democratic at all, like the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, do you, do you snub them and does that hurt you in other ways? These are complicated questions. So I'm not arguing in the kind of specifics, but as a general rule, yeah, we should look to advance our interests with other liberal democracies because liberal democracies tend to have similar interests in that regard. So I think this does uh, point to a, a difference between restrainers, broadly speaking, yes. uh, and, and you, which is that we restrainers are more reluctant than you are to intervene in the internal affairs uh, of other countries, you know, even when there are things going on there that we don't like and disapprove of, uh, within limit, of course. I mean, if it's, yeah. you know, if it's like true genocide or something, then that's a different conversation. Um, 
Let me ask you in that regard what you think about the uh, American uh, sanctions and really for decades now, basically an economic embargo on, on Cuba that has helped Cuba reach, I think, the state of uh, economic desperation that helped uh, that, that helped foment the current unrest. Are you are you a fan of you're more of a fan of sanctions generally than I am, probably. Uh, I personally think we would be in a much better place with Cuba if we had been traded free freely with them since 1960. Uh, and, and, but you know, it's a, it's a hypothetical who knows for sure, but I just, I just, uh, I don't think a, that my government has the right, except under very special circumstances to tell me that I just flat out can't do business with somebody in another country, a and B, um, I just think it's not fair to go ahead and uh, go around subjecting whole populations to uh, to misery, which, which our sanctions have the, have the power to do. And, you, you know, um, so that's my view. You are more pro sanction than I am, I'm sure. Um, well, I, I want to address a couple of things you said. Um, I, I don't have strong feelings about the embargo because I can see both sides of the argument when it comes to Cuba. Um, I will say that it's, Odd, and I'm I, I, I'm not I'm not making the, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth here, Bob. But other people who have attacked the embargo and blamed it for the immiseration of the Cuban people are also the same people who a couple of years ago would talk about how advanced Cuba's healthcare system is and how they're just doing this wonderful job. So you can't have it both ways. Either the the the, the embargo has been devastating. Uh, you know, and Cuba's uh, system isn't so terrific, or Cuba's system's really great, and uh, the embargo has not had the effect. I think that really the problem with Cuba is this very corrupt, uh, sclerotic regime that um, had popular support, certainly during the Cuban Revolution and throughout the 1960s, as the United States painfully learned in the Bay of Pigs, um, because it was people had a fresh memory of the horrors of Batista. But over time, most Cubans only know the kind of just stagnation and uh, horrors of the Castro, the legacy of the Castro regime at this point. And so I would put more of an emphasis on uh, how badly that country has been managed uh, and their system of government than I would on the embargo. And the other thing that you said, which I really fully agree with, and this is, I suppose, my libertarian side – is that I do think that there is something to be said for the argument that the federal government shouldn't, unless it's in extreme circumstances, not tell its citizens who they can do business with. Uh, so I am more sympathetic to that argument from a kind of libertarian perspective, not this foreign policy stuff we're talking about. Um, and uh, in that respect, you know, I think that, you know, the embargo does really present a lot of these problems. And maybe you're right. Maybe if they're what we've been freely trading with the Cubans uh, for, you know, the last 70 years, uh, we wouldn't have Castro at this point because there would be more access. But on the other hand, you know, you hear these stories of people who are from Canada and Europe who come to Tora, to Cuba kind of as tourists, they stay in these, you know, in hotels that no, most Cubans can't afford and uh, it's almost like this kind of zoo, and there's something kind of awful about it because most Cubans live in this terrible, you know, you know, they're they're living in kind of a, a subsistence, and they've been, 
you know, have to deal with all this kind of poverty. And yet the state goes out of its way to kind of put on a show for, you know, the uh, well-meaning liberal tourists who visit. Um, and so in, in that respect, I just, I just kind of go back to the system and I, you know, I'm with the Cuban people who were denouncing Fidel on the streets. It seemed like they were losing their fear and moments like that could give me great hope. Um, and again, I don't think that the answer to this is for Joe Biden to send in the military and invade Cuba. That's not a great idea at all. I think that, but I do think that focusing on maybe how to turn the internet on, uh, would would make a huge difference. It would be a great thing if he could do that. Uh, and by uh, the way, the technology does exist to do it, and he should. And I, I, I take him at his word that he's looking at trying to do it, and I, and I don't really see that. I mean, are you troubled by that as an kind of unnecessary interference in the internal affairs of the Cuban of Cuba? Uh, I'm not in favor of it. Okay. Um, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, you know, just in general. Our attempts to uh, induce grassroots regime change in places like our attempts to induce regime change through military intervention seem to me uh, <laughs> to, to have a way of not going according to script. I mean, you just you just have no idea what's going to happen, uh, you know, if, if you I, I mean, I guess. You know, it would almost be easier for me to stomach this kind of intervention if we had not played such a large role in bringing the level of misery to the boiling point. And we really have, you know, and and I I just uh, so, no, I I don't think it's our place. And, um, you know, I suspect if. uh, um. I don't know if, if foreign countries tried to forcibly override any number of uh, our own regulations on information technology. We might not be so happy, although granted, ours are not nearly as restrictive as Cuba's are at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, by the way, I was in Cuba about five years ago, uh, but I didn't uh, with with uh, my wife and, and my daughter was spending a semester there. But but we didn't stay in a hotel. We actually stayed in the equivalent of an air. We stayed with a family. We mm-hmm. paid them money. I think that was a good thing. I mean, they were they were definitely better off than the average Cubans. But believe me, they weren't fans of the regime. We were putting money in their hands. They were spending money. Uh, you know, they would take the money, I'm sure, and, and, and go buy things that helped, uh, in some cases, people of lower income. Uh, whereas now, you know, our rule is that if you are, if you have a relative in Cuba, if you're in America, you have a relative in Cuba, you're not allowed to send them money. That's just, I, I just, that's unbelievable to me. Well, I, I, I'm not defending the, I, I, I know about what you're talking about with the remittance policy and the justification for it is that the Cuban government takes a slice out of it. And if there was a way to try to get that money to Cuban people without the government taking their piece, that would be the best of both worlds in my view. Yeah. But so let's look at it, sanctions in another uh, context, because Cuba is just a special case of a kind of a tendency, which is that we pick out some countries that are authoritarian and decide for some reason that their continued authoritarianism is some kind of existential threat in a way that all kinds of other authoritarian nations aren't. So like Venezuela, you know, uh, our I'm sanctions. Not gonna, I got, I'm not going to let you get away with that. It wasn't just that Cuba was authoritarian. Now, if you want to take 
the Howard Zinn approach well, to history, you well, could say historically that, they were part of the communist bloc. Yes, but they're they're not. No, meaning, they, they're not they anymore. allowed the Soviet Union to place missiles on the island at the, one of the tensest moments in the Cold War. Fine, but that's kind of history, right? That's not happening now. Okay, but I'm saying that that might explain why. Uh, you know, the okay, CIA then what about Venezuela? Of okay, what about Venezuela of, then? What? what about Venezuela? Why Venezuela? Why are we doing this to Venezuela? Why is that particular authoritarian regime some kind of threat to global order or 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 global norms? Or what, what is going on there? Why pick oh, well, them out? I mean, sure. On the, in the case of Venezuela, there there are a couple of points that are worth making. Mm-hmm. The first is that um, the uh, the utter mismanagement and um, decision of Maduro to put his country and his natural resources in hock to the Chinese and uh, the Russians impoverished the country so much that there really was a massive migration crisis in 2018, 2019, uh, and I imagine there still is. So, of course, well, Venezuela Thanks wait, to our sanctions, I well, think. Wait a more second, wait a second, wait a second. Now, that economic crisis, this level of hyperinflation occurred before the imposition of uh, the serious American sanctions, which I'm assuming that you're talking about here, which are the um, affecting their national oil industry. Um, the That was still at a time when the United States was only sanctioning leaders of Venezuela. I don't have a problem with sanctioning leaders of Venezuela. Um, and second of all, there was uh, an obvious effort from Maduro to violate his own country's constitution, the rules of the OAS or such, and the OAS agreed to all of this, basically said that, you know, he had stolen an election. He wasn't the legitimate president. So after 2019, the Venezuelan constitution said that the leader of the uh, People's Assembly, which would have been in this case Juan Guaido, was going to be the interim leader until there could be more elections. That was the position, the Venezuelan constitution. It was the position of the Organization of American States. It was the position of most of the countries in the EU. And uh, I don't really see what the problem is. I think that that's an example oh, of I, uh, d- liberal democratic countries getting together and trying to uh, stop, uh, you know, uh, someone like Maduro from, you know, stuffing out what's left of a rich democratic tradition in Venezuela, which is what he is trying to do. And if, uh, you know, we'll see what happens, but I hope he doesn't get away with it. And that's that's what that's about. I mean, I actually am not an expert, but I actually think that uh, the view of the OAS uh, was not the view of the Venezuelan Supreme Court, uh, and I'm not... Well, the Venezuelan Supreme Court's tricky, because Maduro packed the Venezuelan Supreme Court in 2017. Did, did and he do it extra-constitutionally? I genuinely yes, don't did. know. No, no, he did, and then, and then there was a breakaway Venezuelan Supreme Court, but he, he the did Constitution it in clear, in clear violation of the Constitution, you're saying? He did? Uh, Bob, are you really going to die on this hill? Yes, Maduro's done everything he can to no, I know that, but I mean, right. but did he? He, he, but he, he, he outlawed the when he lost the, when his party and his people lost the last free election in the country for the legislature. He yeah. created a new legislature. That, that's that's you know that's that's what he did. He, he does not respect elections. He doesn't respect any of these kinds of institutions. And so, by packing the Supreme Court the way that he did, and his his assault on the National Assembly, which is you know basically nullifying it. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the reasons why the current Venezuelan Supreme Court, uh, I would say is not legitimate. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, like I said, I don't know. Uh, but, but it's just, it's just like, like, you know, 
why are we not if the concern is with egregious authoritarians, why aren't we sanctioning, you know, Egypt, Saudi Arabia? You, I mean, any number of other. I, I mean, this is the, I, well, I guess I, mean, I have two you know, questions. You and I both know the answer to that. Uh, what is it? They're, they're, they're allies. And I mentioned it earlier. Okay, I but I mean, but I thought I thought the org, I thought you wanted the organizing principle for who our allies to be. Is, is who the liberal democracies no, are that, so that we can that, fight the authoritarians. That's not what I said. Well, what is your, what, what is I your said is I don't see a problem. I think that there are plenty of good ways for, I think there's plenty of good things the liberal Demo- democratic countries can do. I like the idea of kind of having a club similar to the way that the European Union worked in the 1990s when uh, newly independent states in Eastern Europe uh, would have to meet a set of criteria in order to join the European Union. That's generally like a pretty good model, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we live in the world as it is. The United States has, uh, is, or I should say the Middle East is in the middle of a kind of, you know, cold proxy war between Iran and the Gulf states. We are on a, the Gulf, the side of the Gulf states. We've had, the, they've been our allies since the 1930s. Um, is that the only, is that the reason we, we are on their side? Because like tradition, like, like, it's like rooting for the Boston Red Sox or something. It's because they were on our side in the thirties or is there a better reason? Well, the better reason is like, that it would be worse if Iran prevailed. I mean, it's sort of like, it's, that, it's like it, Afghanistan. It's like, you know, the, the, the government that the United States helped create with the invasion in 2001 has been corrupt. It's been inefficient. There's been all kinds of problems, but it's like infinitely better than the Taliban taking over. So oftentimes you have to make decisions in foreign affairs that are like a choice between terrible and horrendous. And sometimes you got to choose the terrible. And I would say that even still, there are things the United States should and can do uh, to try to pressure. uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say Mubarak, to pressure CC, to pressure the leaders of Saudi Arabia and so forth to open up. And um, I'd like to see more of that. And also to sanction you know, this guy Katani in Saudi Arabia, that was a good thing because he was responsible for, you know, the abduction and murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi. Um, it's complicated, we, but they but they are nonetheless allies against both Iran and much more and more recently, but not that much more recently, um, sort of the Sunni jihadist groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. Well, I mean, Iran would be happy to help us fight and did help us fight ISIS. In a way, they're more reliable allies than the Sunni states. And and, uh, um, you know, I, I would say uh, I, I just want to register. I don't want to get off in an argument about okay. whether Iran's really a, a threat to uh, stability any more than any other country there or a threat to America's interests. I, I very significantly disagree with you on this. I don't I don't. Uh, think that objectively speaking, uh, they are more of a threat to regional stability than, say, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, but I think you're closer to being on the mark when you say, well, Saudi Arabia is our historical ally. So, yeah, they seem like more of a threat because they're against our allies. But then you ask, like, wait a second, why are they our allies? Uh, and, you know, the thing I, uh, I thought at the beginning of the conversation, you were emphasizing as a way to choose our allies, like, are they authoritarians or liberal democracies? That doesn't explain why Saudi Arabia would be our allies. So I, I, it seems to be kind of like a circular America argument. America can only making. have allies that are, I'm not making an argument that America can only have allies. We were, I was talking about international institutions and the tendency of authoritarian states, particularly aggressive authoritarian states and the big ones like China and Russia to undermine that system. I was not making an argument about American alliances. I concede that America is going to have allies from time to time 
that are going to be authoritarian, that are going to be nasty. And it's not great, but that's how it is. And I'm not, so I wasn't saying we should only have alliances with liberal democracies. Okay. But I do think that within an alliance, there are things the United States can do. I mean, George W. Bush uh, managed to pressure Hosni Mubarak to have competitive legislative elections. I was there in Egypt when he did that. Um, and he managed to get him to release some political prisoners. From time to time, you can do things on the margin. And uh, my view is that when there are moments, such as we saw in the Arab Spring in 2011, and you see a sort of beginning of a democratic movement, then uh, friend or foe, we should support the the, the 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 forces of liberal democracy. So do you think similar to similar to by the way the Philippines under Marcos? So uh, so do you think Obama should have uh, at least tried to stop the coup in Egypt and preserve the democratically elected uh, government of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood? Um. I'm somewhat conflicted on this because I don't think that Morsi, uh, I think Morsi was, was on his way and had already started sort of jettisoning some of the things. Oh, that, actually, I think it's almost the opposite. I, I mean, well, he, he, he had made a little bit of power of a power grab and then backed off. I forget what the issue was, but he was uh, honestly, I mean, and you know, parliamentary elections were just months away. I just think. This was one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made. And I would think somebody with your view that we really should be on the side of, of democracy would have said, no, you got to let this play out. Either you're committed to democracy or you're not. He, you know, more. Well, I, I, I disagree with the idea that they basically got a pass for the military coup. So I'm not. I, 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 my, I think my comp, my, my, my. Well, but that was after the fact. When we I think my, thought, my thoughts on on that are complicated by the fact that Morsi had proven himself at that point to be a kind of committed Islamist, which is not a democratic ideology, and that he was trying to bring that vision to Egypt in such a way that would have also posed a threat mm -hmm. had he been allowed to succeed. It doesn't mean that I supported the coup or, you know, to, and in answer to your question, if it was indeed possible for the United States to have tried to prevent it, I would have much rather seen Morsi lose power through an election. I think that would have been much better. Um, I'm not entirely sure that the United States could have prevented it. Maybe they could have. Maybe they oh, could have. May, may or may not have, but, it, but we right. didn't lift a finger. And we knew it. Right. And we knew it was happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, so let me, let me ask you um, to get back to the, the broader uh, yeah. philosophical question. So do you think in terms of why you are wary of authoritarian governments. And again, I, you know, I wish they weren't authoritarian. I mean, we agree on that, but, uh, uh, uh you know, we have different differences of opinion about what we can and, and should try to do about it. But is it your view? Uh, and this is, I think, a not uncommon view that, a, that China in particular finds our alternative to authoritarianism threatening to the extent that it will be working hard to undermine liberal democracies in, in some kind of active way that we should find threatening. Um, I have complicated views on this. I think it's certainly true that China and Russia have used uh, what's sometimes called information warfare to try to sow discord and distrust of American institutions. Um, 
I also think that China is waging a very aggressive cyber warfare campaign against uh, many aspects of American society. And I also think that China has a kind of political warfare program where they are trying to um, corrupt Western countries through ties through the business community um, that, uh, you know, want China to be their manufacturing base. And uh, there's a lot of uh, very good journalism and some recent scholarship on this. And so there's some, some think tank type reports. I'm thinking of one from Stanford University um, that really is alarming. I don't think that China has designs militarily on the United States. I don't even know how they would do that. I, I'm not predicting a kind of military threat. I certainly think that China is, uh, you know, doing their best to threaten Taiwan and has their eyes on Taiwan. And I think that China is in the middle of committing cultural genocide against Uyghur Muslims in the West and has done so with Falun Gong and lots of other kinds of minorities inside of the country. Um, and it's, it's pretty bad. So that has led me to the view when it comes to China that the United States should do what it can, uh, to try to support China, those Chinese who are brave enough to at least try to begin organizing for uh, an alternative to the current system. Um, I do not think that that should be <clears throat> something out of the early Cold War with Alan Dulles and, you know, I don't coups with, you know, fake radio stations and things like that. Um, I think that this can be done in the open. It doesn't even necessarily have to be done by the U.S. government, but there are things that um, technologists can do to try to help people get around Internet bans and evade uh, monitoring from the state on the Internet. That's very helpful to activists. There are expressions of solidarity that can be done with the State Department. And as I said, it should be opportunistic. So when there is another Tiananmen Square moment, and I hope there is one, the United States should should stand with the with the demonstrators and not equivocate in that regard. Um, so that's basically my view. I think that ultimately they would view the United States, you know, they, they don't want us to succeed. And I think we should be honest. And in many ways, we don't necessarily want them to succeed. Our economies are now interconnected in such a way that it'll be very difficult to extract all of it. But certainly on sensitive technologies, there seems to be a new consensus that we shouldn't have to rely on China for uh, PPE, as it was known, and, and you know, life-saving medical supplies, as there was a slowdown in the beginning of the pandemic of that kind of equipment. Uh, there shouldn't be reliance on China for sort of sensitive uh, tech, uh, you know, uh, things that you would put in cell towers that they could then use as maybe beacons for their own intelligence apparatus. There's a whole list of sorts of things which I'd like to decouple with uh, the U.S. and Chinese economy, but within reason and with the acknowledgement that they're pretty tied together right now, and it's it, it, and and some of it probably will have to continue. And when you say we don't want them to succeed, they don't want us to succeed. Um... I mean, is your view we shouldn't want them to succeed unless their success is accompanied by some degree of liberalization? Is that kind of it? Well, we the, the old view was we'll trade with them, they'll mm -hmm. get prosperous, and mm -hmm. over time, liberalization will, will come. That was we had this great belief that over time they would understand that, you know, that they would be better off if they were like us. I think that was naive. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think that's true anymore. I, I, so we can't just 
hope and wish that over time they'll be okay because they have a middle class now and, you know, historically middle class will want more freedom and it'll work itself out. Uh, no, it's a constant struggle. And yeah, I personally think the jury's out on that, but if that dynamic connecting, you know, market-based economies to some degree of political liberalization is, 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 is valid. If, if there is that linkage, it, it will probably take a while to play itself out and fits and starts and so on. But one thing I would, I would say, uh, and, and in a way, this applies more to Russia than China because we've, we've sanctioned Russia more. And, and for other reasons, I, I would say, I, I, let me ask if you agree, if you agree with this, that like, if your goal is to make authoritarian, um, governments less so, and, and, and moreover to, uh, to, if you would like to see people in Russia and China, Kind of look at America and, uh, ask, demand more in the way of the kind of freedoms we have in their countries. Okay. Let's say like that is a good, that's something you and I would probably both like to see is that the, the Russian people express a desire for more, uh, liberty. Do you agree that if, if, if Putin say is fighting that one of his strongest assets in fighting it is the perception of external opposition. In other words, if he can plausibly say it's it's the Americans who are doing X, Y, and Z to us, that makes it a lot easier for him to preserve authoritarian power. Don't you think that's kind of a general principle of political psychology? Well, first of all, the United States doesn't sanction Russia because, I mean, they may sanction, there might be some Navalny sanctions now because- of the uh, attempted murder and then imprisonment. But it's primarily the sanctions that Putin cares about is because he annexed Crimea and invaded Ukraine and lied about it. So, you know, he can say what he wants. The Russian people are not stupid. They don't have, they're not cut off from the outside world the way the North Koreans in a lot of ways are. Um, and they, they say that anyway. All of these regimes constantly try to say, that anybody who presents a real challenge to their rule and their legitimacy are being inspired by the Americans or being stoked by the Americans or it's all the CIA. That happens all the time. I think we have to trust that the people in these countries understand that their governments lie to them all the time and they don't believe them. And I don't necessarily think it should stop us from, as I said, these are fairly prudent, moderate, like modest steps um, that can be taken to support what has to be an indigenous movement. I mean, my criteria here is not for the United States to conquer Russia and China and impose democracy. My idea is to, is really similar to the solidarity model with, uh, Lekwalesa and the Polish dock workers. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically the idea that we have an interest in doing this and we should, when there are moments of opportunity to do to do things, we should. Sometimes that moment of opportunity would mean uh, private diplomacy. Sometimes it would mean sanctions. Sometimes it could mean any number of things. I'm a fan of what sometimes are called the Magnitsky sanctions, which are holding specific uh, Russian government officials responsible for human rights violations. I think that's a very effective tool. And it's one that, uh, in some ways, I think is, 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 is a more precise 
and uh, humane approach than sector-wide sanctions that, you know, are aimed at affecting the economy. Um, not to say that I'm, that there's never an opportunity to never do that, but I do think that there are things that you can do to try to say that human, you know, the ghastly human rights abusers cannot send their children to Western universities and shop in Paris. That's a great idea. And insofar as it has an effect, I think it's important. Well, I think you're, you're right. First of all, to distinguish between sanctions that are about Russia's external behavior, like the annexation of Crimea and its internal behavior on, on the, uh, you know, because, uh, as a progressive realist, uh, you know, like I think realists in general, um, I would put, uh, I would want to devote more energy to, uh, constraining the, the threatening external behavior of, of countries. I would say that we would be in a stronger position, uh, to complain about their violation of that particular piece of international law if we did not, uh, keep violating ourselves, you know, uh, as we've discussed, um, you know, invading countries and stuff. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think that's a valid, uh, distinction. And I meant the question more in the context of, uh, sanctions regarding internal behavior, because I worry that uh, sanctions that are motivated by concern for the, the status of, of, of uh, individual freedom inside these countries can wind up uh, being deployed rhetorically by the leadership in a way that that has the effect of constraining uh, freedom. But, you know, and I, and I take your point that They'll, they'll find something to complain about in any event, so long as there's a fundamentally antagonistic relationship. Uh, I personally think that, you know, talking points are more effective when they have some, some empirical basis. But, uh, but I take your point. Um, let me, let me, uh, you know, we're, we should probably, uh, wrap it up soon. Let me just focus on one thing in the essay of yours that, that we alluded to, a, a, a term, that I kind of object to, which is quietism. Um, oh. you, 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 you use that to characterize the, the restrainers. I looked it up. <laughs> it means the calm acceptance of things as they are without attempts to resist or change them. And I, here I would uh, emphasize that I think the progressive realist part of the restrainer camp in particular really wants to change things. I mean, all that, that list I gave you of international problems that I think we need to solve, uh, for, for, for the sake of the world and the sake of America, they're real and it's, it's longer than the list I gave you. And I think it's going to take a revolution in governance and, and, a and a movement of some, non-trivial amount of governance from the national level to the international level to address all these problems. And that, and that is what, uh, motivates a lot of my, uh, uh, my taking issue with, uh, say your view or the, or the views of more interventionist, um, liberal internationalists. I think we really need to focus on, um, certain forms of international cooperation, but I, w- I certainly wouldn't call it quietism. Well, what I mean by quietism in that context is that, you know, I, I, I don't think, in, I mean, it, does your list of things that we should all cooperate on include the cultural genocide of Uyghur Muslims in Western China? Well, it's a very, uh, it's a very bad thing that's going on. I see pretty clear limits on our ability to realistically, um, 
change that situation right now. Um, I mean, I mean, what is your, uh, uh, ah, I guess I would say. It sounds a little bit like quietism to me. Well, we, no, but my point is, it's that we're, di- we have different issues that we want to put our energy into. I, okay. I, I, I understand. I was using the, the, the term to talk about the issues that I'm concerned about, which right. is, so on those issues, you could say, I, 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 I think that the general view is that, um, there's not much we can do, even if we wanted right. to. And besides who are we to intervene given all the terrible things that we've done? And well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, and, and again, I, I, I'm not, you know, I, I love having these conversations because I, I, I want to make a sort of, almost a deeper point here. One of the great things about blogging ads that we have lost in our broader culture, but I would say I understand the limits of my understanding. I hope that I will have the, uh, you know, the, I, when I, when I'm wrong about something, I hope I can be persuaded out of it. And I think that you have that approach too. So I, I just want to say like, you know, that's, that's my view, how I organize mm-hmm. things. Um, and that's, by the way, one of the great things about blogging heads, even though I haven't been on as much recently as I was in the kind of the, the first few years of it, but that is the, that's an important value that I think we've lost. Jonathan Rausch writes about this, the idea of epistemic humility, that two people can come into a conversation and they have, I think we both have pretty well considered views on this. We've been debating and arguing about this kind of stuff now for more than a decade, but I leave open the possibility that I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, and let me, uh, I'll give you another chance to have the last word because I'm going to reply to that first. I mean, two things. I brought up the quietism thing because I do believe that the conservative realist part of the restrainer coalition is probably a little more eligible for that term. I mean, they're kind of like, Hey, the world is a jungle. We're doing the best we can. It's always going to be like this. Uh, and I think maybe more of them are, you know, some of them, well, they will acknowledge there are these transnational problems and, and, and so on. Uh, but I don't think they are, uh, they have as much of a bee in their bonnet about doing something about them as I do. So, so they might be in a certain sense more quietist. I, I would say that I think actually something realists in general might say is that their perspective is informed by a certain kind of humility. Uh, it, it's, it's not, I don't know if I'd call it epistemic humility. I, I would say there is a tremendous emphasis among realists on working hard to understand what the perspective is of the other player, no matter how bad you consider them. Assad, Putin, whoever, it, it's important. And, the, and they would say in the interest of the world in the long run, for you to try to understand what's going on in their head. I mean, even if it's a flat out enemy and you're at war with them, it's of strategic value to understand well, what's going I on in their head. That. I mean, so, everybody would agree. So with there's that. that. And then I right. would say there is, if not, uh, I mean, that's a kind of epistemic humility in the sense you recognize that unless you make the effort, you may not understand, uh, what's going on. Uh, and then maybe there's a kind of a moral humility. And, and maybe you would say it's worse than it, it, it's a moral relativism and is bad. But I think there is a little, uh, maybe not a reluctance to pass ultimately moral judgment, but an insistence on, uh, engaging in self scrutiny morally before passing, uh, moral judgment because humans are so good at passing moral judgment unreflectively. That's what I, I would say. I, I, I don't object to the idea that we have to take 
a view of American history that accounts for the whole ride. I disagree with emphasis that only talks about America, the crimes of American empire. Uh, but I equally disagree with hagiographies and patriotic BS that only tells us that everything we ever did was, you know, sweetness and light. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I am an American exceptionalist, but I come to that American exceptionalism with an awareness that, a that, that not, that, that in many ways the nation was born in sin, the sin of slavery and that we strive to be a more perfect union, but we don't always go in a straight line in that direction. And that's okay by me. I still think that we are the best nation on earth and we should, and the world is better off when we are a superpower. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say is this, which I think also gets lost sometimes when we have these larger sorts of debates. Uh, as I was thinking through and researching and reading for the essay that I wrote a year ago um, that started this conversation, it occurred to me that the American tradition has both progressive and conservative realists like yourself. It has a tradition of pacifism that goes back to the Quakers. It has, um, and, and the anti-imperialists after World War I and before World War I. And that there, that is, ju- and that your tradition is just as American as my tradition of, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of proud nation that wants to defend liberty. Uh, and show solidarity with groups that are fighting tyrants abroad. Mm-hmm. And that the country contains both traditions. And that too often, uh, in these debates, there is a kind of push on both sides sometimes to sort of say that you're representing a point of view that's kind of foreign to the American experience. We've been having this debate since the Continental Congress right. when, uh, John Adams and Sam Adams were making the case for revolution. And the Quakers of Pennsylvania were asking for a middle pass. Mm-hmm. We've been having this debate and it is, and both sides are Americans and it's an American and, and, well, and it's. I'm glad to hear you say that because as I recall your essay, you, you did, uh, make a connection between the, uh, modern day restrainers and the, uh, America firsters of the early 20th century, whom you characterized in not entirely flattering terms, right? Correct. But I also, you remember, I also said they had a point because it came after World War One, which was a horrendous war. And it's totally understandable that there would be millions of Americans who would not want to intervene in another war in Europe, even though it was a great, even though I believe it was a very noble cause to defeat the Nazis. I, I, and I would certainly not, yes, I think the America first crowd was in the wrong, but I think I had a pretty nuanced view of it. I would certainly not say that Lindbergh and his crowd, they were, that is part, that's exactly my point. That's a part of the American tradition as much as I think, um, the, uh, the sort of view of America expressed by Robert Hagan and some of his histories. Um, it's, it's, it, we contain multitudes as well. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, there aren't many restrainers who would say we shouldn't have fought World War Two. And and uh, and, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. I supported the Bosnian intervention, which had the authority of the Security Council, which I always like to see. Um, but uh, but uh, we can agree that, uh, yeah, there's a long. Um, there, there, I'm just saying I, I wasn't making it. I was just saying it as a observing the the breakdown of our discourse in the last few years, uh, both sides have reached for this card of, you know, trying to impugn 
you know, the other side is somehow foreign as un-American and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're against that. Yeah. I, I'm saying like, accept the full rich tapestry that is American. You know that. Okay. Good. The, uh, both the Bob threads and the Eli threads that make this rich tapestry yes. of a nation. Well, uh, well, thank you, Eli. This has thank been another so uh, constructive conversation. I, I think. really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And, uh, we'll, we'll do it again next time, uh, America seems to need straightening out on foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs>